Hello and welcome to Predator Minute, the podcast which breaks down the 1987 action sci-fi classic Predator one minute at a time. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. Minute three begins with executive producer credits over some just landed helicopters and ends with a casting credit over someone in boots descending some concrete steps. Who could that be? And within the minute, we see a man drinking by himself, and we see Arnold's group debarking their chopper, a UH-1 Huey. Talking about this minute, there are a lot of credits. We have executive producers. We have the music composer. We have special effects. We have the creature effects. And we have the casting director. And we'll spend some time talking about each one of these. But if you'd like... Aaron, uh, to talk about some of the things we actually see in this minute. Oh, lots of things. This is uh, this is all part of this beginning here, setting the stage for the movie. We talked about this a lot in the last minute. The fact that the music is going, they got helicopters uh, all running in, and that they're showing every single major character in the movie right away. So, as mentioned in the last minute, this movie doesn't mess around trying to get the action started. Right, just all, all the setup. And uh, for all the work that credit research gives us uh, when we're doing this kind of minute-by-minute minute breakdown, I really do appreciate the credits over things to actually see, to watch. Some movies will have just a black screen or blank screen with the credits rolling versus actually showing some action, in this case showing some setup, like you are saying, crucial to the plot and crucial to knowing where these people are coming from who they are, what the mission is going to be. I greatly prefer that. I don't know about you, but um, it just takes care of business right away. Yeah, that's a good point. And they, uh, they, it's just a couple more minutes of, of actual uh, time heading into the movie instead of just reading names. Uh, by the time they sh- have shown the last credit, essentially we've seen Arnold's team land. We've seen him walk up to the general, and that's right when the dialogue starts, right as soon as the credits end and i did want to jump into the credits just because it's a part of the job of us podcasters you have to break down who the people are who made this movie i'm just going to go through some of these in order starting with executive producers lawrence Pereira and jim thomas lawrence Pereira only really had one other credit to his name a film named santos that's never officially been made so not a lot to say about him and the other executive producer is Jim Thomas, who also wrote the screenplay with his brother John. Uh, they did not produce a whole lot of other works when I went to the IMDb for them. Uh, for both he and his brother John, they tended to work on the same things together, uh, namely Predator 2, and then Executive Decision, Mission to Mars, and Behind Enemy Lines. That's what other things they worked on, which are all either action or sci-fi or a mix of the both. One other credit that Jim and John Thomas were known for tv wise was a tv show called hard time on planet earth i don't don't know if you remember this one this is uh this human or this alien in human form is sent to earth to serve out a sentence and he has this little alien floating buddy next to him at all times this alien in human disguise has kind of these superpowers and it only lasted I think a season and a half a season. I I distinctly remember this because I remember just how weird it was that this guy had this alien floating around him. And at one point, I think he had three machine guns taped together, um, like three M16s. I don't know if you remember this show. (laughs) 
Sounds like a memorable moment in uh, in our younger lives. Wow, three machine guns. <laughs> do, do you remember this show? Do you remember? No, was, I, uh, don't, I have no memory of this whatsoever. What year was it? It was 1988. <laughs> it was the year after Predator. <laughs> I see. I see. No, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot else uh, to Jim and John Thomas. Like I said, Jim is one of the executive producers, but also one of the authors of the screenplay. The thing I notice on IMDb, though, is that they're given the character credit every time Predator is mentioned, right, in uh, movies and comics, graphic novels, books. So I'm pretty yep. sure what happened was they <laughs> they wrote the screenplay for this, created the characters, and then have really just been living off, off these characters for the last 30 plus years and that's that's not a not a bad way to to make a fortune to make your living yeah predator is by far their most popular creation as far as the character goes and it's definitely been the most most replicated so it's pretty smart of them to have that all trademarked and copyrighted so they can uh, continue to claim it uh the next credit goes to alan silvestri doing the music he has over 30 years of composing surprisingly only one spielberg film i thought he would have a lot more because he directs for Robert, Robert Zemeckis a lot, but uh, a lot of these big-name directors tend to have one big-name composer. I think about Spielberg obviously being with John Williams a lot, mm-hmm. um, Danny Elfman mm-hmm. being with Tim Burton a lot, Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. being with Christopher Nolan, and so mm-hmm. on and on down the line. But Alan Silvestri, if <laughs> he has many, many credits to his uh, name, uh, including 17 films just with... Robert Zemeckis, including things like *Romancing the Stone*, mm. the *Back to All Three of Back to the Future* mm-hmm. movies, *Who Framed Roger Rabbit*, mm-hmm. *Contact*, *Forrest Gump*, *Castaway*, *Polar Express*, on and on and on to this year's Robert Zemeckis movie *Welcome to Marwin*. But without Robert Zemeckis, there are 107 other film credits on IMDb. Yeah, it's prolific. It's very prolific. If 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 you've seen movies from the 80s, 90s. 2000s, 2010s, <laughs> uh, there's a really good chance that the bigger movies have been uh, composed by Alan Silvestri, uh, Flight of the Navigator, Overboard, yeah. The Abyss, Predator 2, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, The Bodyguard, Super Mario Brothers, Grumpy Old Men, Eraser, Long Kiss Goodnight, Fools Rush In, The Mexican, The Night at the Museum movies, the first G.I. Joe movie, The A-Team, Captain America First Avenger, and then most recently, Avengers, Ready Player One, and the Avengers Infinity War, plus the Infinity War sequel coming out in 2019. So there are a lot of memorable tracks in there. I think of Forrest Gump, and I can immediately think of the um, the track from the beginning of the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do as the feathers floating down, all Silvestri. Mm-hmm. And of course, my favorite is Predator, right? The da 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 <laughs> that starts us off, um, starts our podcast off every time and is playing during these minutes, which is fitting. So any thoughts on Silvestri's work? Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of action movies for him. He definitely seems to be really good at setting the mood for a lot of these action-packed movies. So and you, and you mentioned either Last Minute or Minute One, just that hard-driving score. That's going all throughout this movie. I've rewatched this movie a few times not <laughs> humble brag there <laughs> but i've watched the movie a few times <laughs> over the last you know few months and and the score always stands out to me just every time just how well it's driving the action or it's 
introducing a character or alerting the audience to something that they sh- that the characters on screen are not aware of. He he does a fantastic job of that, um, and that's something we see. I feel mm-hmm. we see a lot with the credits with this movie, both in the casting and in the crew. Is that there are a lot of top level kind of people working on this movie from director to composer to editor to the special effects to the creature design to the actors themselves of course but a lot of really top of the line level people i feel came together to make this and it's the little things on repeated viewings that i notice that feature those little touches absolutely a lot of people at the top of their game here and just as you say i think that just comes around to making this a very well-crafted movie so I think it, it achieves pretty much everything it's it's trying to achieve in this movie. So they weren't setting out to make a goofy comedy or anything romantic in this. They set out specifically to make this action sci-fi adventure. And they uh, I think they stuck to a, a theme that worked really well throughout the whole movie. I don't think there's anything that's really out of place. The special visual effects were by R slash Greenberg, which if you go to their website, they are very much still busy today they go by r slash ga now or maybe just rga but they they're a company who have, who has changed their modus operandi over the course of the last 40 years or such they started with visual effects and now they're more into advertising um, trying to help companies become more successful it's quite interesting the the path they've taken from starting with the Mm-hmm. title effects for Superman 1978 where the the title credits kind of flash through space up to the screen in this pseudo three-dimensional popping out on down the line to more advanced visual effects like we see in Predator like you see in Independence Day The Matrix to a lesser effect Xanadu <laughs> but but they've been busy over the years where they started with visual effects and now they're more working with like I said, business to advertise and develop brands. But in this movie particularly, they worked on the active camouflage and the Predator's POV shots. And those are those, oh, yeah. are those are two revolutionary effects of the time where when you're watching this movie and you see that camouflage for that first time, you can't help but think, how did they do that? And we'll talk much more in depth on those scenes because those scenes definitely merit that with the amount of work and the amount of redos they had to go through. Robert Greenberg was the founder. He actually just died in June a couple of months back and uh, he's remembered for all of these really innovative ways to get these effects. You have to remember that in the ages before computer generated uh, graphics were around, they had to be very creative with their ability to get these effects. I was reading this great article on uh, this website called the Visual Effects Blog, VFX Blog, and they had this long article on the, the way they did the, the effects for Predator. And a lot of it was over my head as far as how they were able to actually get these effects translated under the film. But it was just lots and lots of like this actual like manual labor to get it done. So there was like very little coding and very little <laughs> computer work. It was it was all of these like difficult workarounds to make these effects. And in a lot of ways, they were really crucial to the movie. In fact, there's uh, this quote on the visual effects blog from one of the guys who worked on the film. This guy, Joel Hine. He says that he was talking with one of the producers, Joel Silver, and uh, until he could prove to him that they could do the effects that he wanted for the film, the camouflage for the Predator and the heat vision, that they weren't going to do the film at all. And then it wasn't until he he demonstrated the effects to them that Joel Silver uh, got excited, was willing to move forward with everything else. And he talks about a couple different instances when they're on set and when they're not able to get the exact effect they want uh, quickly, that 
the producers would blow up at him and tell him they were fired and they were going to sue them for a breach of contract and uh, not able to provide what they promised. But then they were always able to find a workaround and make it work. And <laughs> and I think the end result uh, worked out really well for the movie. Oh, totally. Something about the background research for this movie that has really in- intrigued me is just how much on set and just while filming they're trying to still figure out a lot of this uh, there's something really charming about that sure. but in the moment i'm sure it's the most pressurized situation <laughs> imaginable like he's like you sure. said right if, if you can't do this like we're not going to make the movie you're going to be out of job right breach a contract yeah and that went that went through every part of the film right it was the visual effects it was the casting <laughs> making casting oh, yeah. changes throughout is rewriting the script it was re relocating the the shooting it was like yeah so many different things in this movie that they had to uh work their butts off for to to get the end result right some uh some other interesting things about robert greenberg or i'm sorry about r greenberg you know i'm pretty sure they were nominated for best visual effects academy award this year but they lost to uh, Inner Space. Yeah, I, s- I saw that. <laughs> I was like, that seems to me like such a bummer that they that this movie Inner Space won, whereas the, the movie that ultimately would become the classic did not get recognized, which I think is too bad. Yeah, I mean, it, Inner Space does, I feel like, give some good competition in that they're showing you, you know, like inside of a human body, but Inner Space is based on Fantastic Voyage, I believe. It's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. based on an existing yep. story, so they're just kind of like updating that and showing that with mm-hmm. less cheesy graphics than it's not original. in the 1950s. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, this is completely original. We're going to take this alien and, and completely camouflage it so you can't see it <laughs> at all. We're going to give you this these thermal yeah. POV shots. Well, you know, uh, that was a almost a brand new category in the Academy Awards back then. And so I sort of get the feeling that they were trying to award a movie that like was trying to be really audacious and, and do a lot of visual effects, even if they weren't necessarily like super memorable and classic, as opposed to honoring the movie that sort of where the visual effects, I think, best actually served the movie, which I think is sort of where the award has gone since then. It's no longer just awarding whoever has the most computer graphics it's awarding the movie that uh where the the graphics actually do the most for the movie right and i think that does exactly that in this movie where the stealth and the pov heightens the tension and immediately puts the viewer just as much on the defensive as the soldiers that the predator is, is tracking down stan winston is next with a creature design stan winston is another name that comes up in the movies a lot like i said these credits are just rife with people who come from the top of their respective games and stan winston is no different he's well known for creature and makeup effects over the years in many movies uh <laughs> We're picking all this up. Either. I'm going to have recordings of you going potty in the background. That's my kid. Yeah. In the so, background. Yeah, brother John and I are both are both fathers of daughters. And it's it's wonderful that they get to make an appearance here at the, the Predator Bennett. That's right. I believe it's a child-friendly film. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Eva would love seeing... <laughs> A goofy-looking alien just bouncing around the leaves and having a good old time with his buddies in the woods. (laughs) The littlest predator. All right. Uh, Stan Winston, known for popular works such as Starman, The Thing, Iron Man, Jurassic Park, Terminator, Aliens, Congo, Monster Squad, Wolfman's Got Nards, Invaders from Mars, (laughs) Galaxy Quest, 
Well, he's the monster man, right? He's the, I mean, he's the creature, the creature man. And like you said, he was at the top of his game when this movie came out. Oh, yeah. Now, did you read the story that I read about where he was getting ideas for this this monster? I've heard bits and pieces, but I haven't heard the whole story. Yeah, I guess the the only thing I, I was reading about was just that, you know, he came in and in a lot of ways was, this is one of these things where he really saved the movie that we talked about, this movie that had so many complications, where they had this creature that was, the original creature they had was just completely unworkable, and that, in fact, they shut down production because of, of how unworkable they thought the, the original uh, creature was, and then they got Stan Winston involved and uh, Stan Winston right and if you look at the test but it's for the original creature you would definitely have to agree like it looks terrible. like a lobster I don't know like, like yeah, basically just a giant awful. bug which is not that terrifying when you compare it to no, what we end no, up with giant bug piloted by a martial artist so just yeah just not that great and then uh, the, the story that's repeated is that he was on a plane with James Cameron another great uh, visual effects artist and James Cameron helped inspire him to make a creature with the big open mandibles that's one of the sort of defining characteristics that makes the, the predator kind of terrifying looking uh, later in the movie right yeah the, the whole clicking and things too like that absolutely uh, last thing about stan winston is that he won oscars for terminator 2 actually two oscars for terminator 2 he won for jurassic park and won an oscar for aliens and those are all iconic iconic movies for their special effects particularly the aliens with the practical creature effects hey. and then nt2 uh, a good mix of practical and CGI uh, and Jurassic Park um, that blend again with the CGI and the practical where it's really hard to tell at moments where it jumps between the creature effects and the visual effects. Let's talk a little bit more about what we're seeing on screen during these credits. We gave a kind of an overview at the beginning about what you see. So right at the beginning, we see some helicopters. But as I recall, this is a Bell 212, is that right? No, it's a Bell Jet Ranger. That's right, 205. Uh, Correct. As we uh, we talk about the scene here that's unfolding during the credits, what we start with is this view of the helicopters. So they've got the, the UH-1 Iroquois, also called a Huey, and then they've got the Bell Jet Ranger 205. Uh, those are both helicopters that I'm familiar with back from the search and rescue days I used to do. They were fun to ride around in. What's uh, I think one thing that's interesting about these is you'll see these as stand-ins for helicopters in a lot of movies. These are both early 60s era uh, helicopters, so Vietnam era uh, helicopters for the U.S. military. Even though by the time this movie came out, the U.S. Army was typically using newer helicopters like the like the UH-60 Blackhawk that you see a lot in modern movies. They're actually very difficult to come by to find an actual practical physical helicopter to use in a movie because the military is so protective of their technology. They're not going to let civilians use those and so to this day in most movies if you have a practical helicopter effect like where they actually have to have a physical helicopter on screen they're typically going to be using a uh1 iroquois or a belt jet ranger just because they were in the in, in the old days they were very common in the military now they're not very common because they're older uh but they're about the only ones that they'll let uh, civilians use especially for for movies oh that's interesting and you mentioned there being two helicopters and it took me a while to find what they meant by two helicopters and i believe what it's referring to is here at second five in this minute uh when the general is looking out the window at he sees two different helicopters the larger one in the background is the the UH-1 Iroquois and the one in the foreground is the 206 Jet Ranger. Looks like the 206... 206- 
206 would be the smaller of the two because the one that they rode in on is the Bell 212, which can hold, according to the helicopter research, up to 15 people. That is a large load. And when they are traveling with their whole team, yeah, they're needing about 15 people's worth <laughs> of room in that chopper, I think. Just the big, big boys. With the amount of muscle and testosterone and weaponry. Oh, yeah, big boys. Yeah. Uh, there's a slight goof here that I saw on the IMDb in that when it's flying in, the, the Huey that they're riding in clearly does not have rocket launchers. And when they are debarking the the helicopter, uh, there's clearly a rocket. Yeah, they have the rocket so pod there. Funny little goof I noticed on the IMDb. Yeah, the rocket pod, but it's one that's I'm sure overlooked really easily because the helicopter never actually uses any kind of weaponry. The crew that drops in the jungle are clearly <laughs> the weaponry. Last credit for this scene is the casting director Jackie Birch from the Oral History of Predator Hollywood Reporter site. You told me about that earlier, so I looked up Jackie Birch and Predator, and then try to find a quote that talks about her role in the movie. <laughs> And putting together this cast, there's a nice little quote from her. I'll read it right here. I remember when I first read the script that I thought, I want to get all Vietnam vets in this movie that could act. And that's how I met Jesse the Body Ventura. Jesse had a great manager, Barry Bloom, and he kept saying, you gotta meet him. You gotta meet him. He was a wrestler, but he was a Vietnam vet. And the second I met Jesse, I knew that we had the guy. And I brought him over right away to Joel, as in Joel Silver, the producer. And we love Bill Duke from Commando. So that was a no-brainer. Remember, Bill Duke was the Green Beret in Commando. I believe I eat Green Berets for breakfast. And I'm very hungry. (laughs) And Carl Weathers, I love from all the Rocky movies, and I thought he'd be great. And pretty much, I think, other than Sonny Landham, who played Billy, because I think Joel had a relationship with him, I'm not sure what his background was, but knowing him, he would be fine. It was fun putting those guys together. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like all these people had great scouting by Jackie Birch, and then there's Sonny slash Billy, who is clearly the wild card in real life (laughs) in this movie, too. Mm -hmm. You don't really know what to expect from him, and and that just adds to the... whatever the wackiness of this team but it is interesting because you mentioned before when we we're going through the casting credits last minute about there being vietnam vets and it's clearly something the casting director had in mind which is neat richard chavez poncho she doesn't mention here but that is someone she scouted separately seeing a play called tracers which richard chavez and other vietnam vets put together and wrote and produced i believe they performed tracers in the la area uh, and jackie birch the casting director went to go see it really liked what she saw really liked his performance i think it was that she tried him out in a different movie role and that didn't work out but then she had remembered him for this movie that's something that works well for the movie is is having people with vietnam experience or (laughs) for bill duke and carl weathers just have an action movie experience fit the bill for this movie yeah you know we talked a little bit about this in the last minute and i completely forgot to point out that you know arnold also military background in austria he was a tanker a soldier served in a tank crew before he came to the the United States. Right, right. And I believe reading some of his interviews um, from his bodybuilding days, he talked a lot about serving in the military and basically like using spare time to work out and such and like do all this kind of planning and this scheming, which is no surprise knowing this Arnold public figure uh, that we know today of someone who's been uh, driving himself for years and years and years from when he was like a grunt in the Austrian army to now, you know, political office and action movie star. 
Absolutely. Uh, but that's the last credit for this scene. The big action in this scene is the crew is leaving the, the chopper. We see Arnold's team debarking. We see them at a low camera angle, which I imagine is meant to make them look larger than life, larger than uh, they would normally appear on camera versus like a straight on or over the head shot. We're looking at them from, I would say, about ground level. So you're looking up at them. They have kind of like these hero poses as they hop off, uh, especially the first few of the crew. Blaine leaves first. He he shows his trademark by spitting tobacco out the window, wearing his sunglasses, his MTV shirt, his jeans. Uh, the MTV shirt is something that plays out a little bit later, or plays out later in the movie when he's walking through the jungle holding his minigun, Old Painless. Jesse in particular makes a, a makes a memorable exit, really giving people an idea for his character. And I think he also sets the tone with the, the very undisciplined, unmilitary dress, right? This is what our stepbrother Kyle would uh, refer to as, you know, civvies, civilian clothes. And I think it's just clear that these guys are not ordinary soldiers, that there's something special about them. Uh, it's never really explained in the movie exactly what the nature of their group is. And I think that's just fine. In fact, probably better that they don't explain exactly what's going on with their group but this is just one way of showing that they're they're very confident and they don't play by a lot of the same rules that you would expect uh, the regular rank and file military to oh clearly not just in their appearance but their behavior like no soldier on duty would be spitting tobacco out the door of a huey <laughs> as they land yeah, no saluting. <laughs> Just tossing their, their duffels around. But at the same time, they're all business. You look at the expression on their faces, they're not smiling. They're ready to go to work. Yeah, they're not smiling. They yeah, have some real BA expressions when they open that door the first time. That just freeze frame and look at Mac and Blaine uh, and Sonny. Yeah, it's just, yeah, they're there to kick some A and take some names. Next off is Mac hopping off in a business suit and Oakley's. He's just, I don't know, yeah. like leaving a production in Hollywood or something like that. But he is, he's, yeah. <laughs> he is, he is all business. That's typically how you, how you want to travel to a war zone. Just get the suit right. and tie, pressed. Want to look good? Yeah, just it just kind of makes me think about what are what are each of these people leaving to come join this, and, and they're they're not leaving some <laughs> kind of like other military excursion or incursion, or whatever, what have you. But they're they're just kind of leaving their their everyday lives to you know to do a job next off is billy he's sporting i don't know what you'd call it, it looks kind of like a casual sports suit maybe no sunglasses now remember let's keep an eye on billy this movie because because billy definitely does things his own way and a team of commandos doing things their own way billy really stands out and, and here is no different he hops off and no sunglasses he's just staring off for whatever reason he's the, he's the one not wearing sunglasses so again just kind of stands out to me he looks like he's got some kind of track suit on and he's definitely the one with the long hair kind of rebellious in that way as opposed to the close military cut that you would expect a lot of soldiers to have again that's that's billy being billy <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah one of the quotes i remember that found very entertaining was from i believe it was from the dvd documentary about the making of predator and uh they were interviewing shane black who was talking about his character and he said that they, to some extent they had some freedom to decide what the what their characters would look like a little mm-hmm. bit. And Shane Black said at first his character was supposed to have this big red beret. And he said it looked ridiculous <laughs> and it didn't look covert or anything like that. He got rid of it. And he said Sonny Landham told him that was a huge mistake. And he said, 
why'd you do that? And that was like the something that made your character really stand out and be unique. Just something that you would want in a movie like this, kind of an over-the-top action movie in some ways. Right, yeah, that, that is interesting. And yeah, everybody kind of has a thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Shane Black got rid of the Red Beret, though. I agree, that would be pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it, it would kind of make you think, like, wait, is he like trying to signify a different rank right now when everybody else is right in these green fatigues later on or yeah. just kind of casual wear even worse to just kind of be sporting a, a beret just walking around poncho hops off wearing short sleeve button down shirt jeans sunglasses almost on the same level of mac looking just as serious and business-like just kind of a little bit dressed down version of that like maybe he was i don't know like a construction contractor or something like that <laughs> he's looking pretty relaxed he's got what looks like a uh, a virgin mary necklace on i think so that necklace is featured later in some in one of the scenes later in the movie and i think goes along with his character being the the latino uh so the one who's got maybe the closest connection to sort of the catholicism that's uh really prevalent in latin america oh right good point about talking about faith mixing with the with the spanish-speaking element that they have to uh, adapt to in the jungle and interacting with with anna later on hawkins is the next to hop off he's wearing some aviators with croquis because right it's not it's not enough for him for the (laughs) for them to make him look nerdy wearing these huge goofy glasses later but they even give him like the big old (laughs) croquis that us lifelong glasses wearers <laughs> know all about. And you, you mentioned the beret that they omitted ultimately later on in his appearance. But to me, whenever I think Hawkins, I think of like those big, big 1980s like computer programmer glasses dad used to wear, for example. Yeah. Those huge one. They cover up, you know, easily mm-hmm. half your face. And in talking about the actor credits yesterday, we left off Shane Black mostly because he wasn't mentioned in the opening actor credits. And Shane Black has a really interesting role with this movie where the writers and Joel Silver brought him on set essentially to help buff up the script with the promise that he'd be acting in the movie but him acting in the movie is a short affair in that he is the first character killed off by the Predator. We were mentioning the heights of the characters yesterday and uh, here Shane Black is at 5 foot 10 slightly below average height but uh, quite a bit below average height for the group. Shane Black went on to write and direct several movies he's most well known in the beginning of his career for writing Lethal Weapon and the story for Lethal Weapon 2. And then he wrote Monster Squad, Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, another John McTiernan film. After Last Action Hero, that's when his writing directing picked up with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, The Nice Guys, and the upcoming movie, The New The Predator. And we can talk more about his directorial style when we actually listen to him talk some because what ultimately he states in interviews to this day that he added to the Predator script were really just his couple of dirty jokes that he tells Billy and tries to make laugh. <laughs> Which I thought was uh, quite interesting because you would think, oh, like some of the banter between the people are uh, have a little bit of that Shane Black flair. But no, he, he only takes credit himself for writing his, his own lines, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Shane Black, uh, very interesting. So he was just coming off of amazingly huge success with Lethal Weapon, with the script for Lethal Weapon. And so when they hired him on this movie, they were hoping to make sure they got some of his input uh, onto this movie. And the story was they that they were they asked him to come along as part of the writing crew, and he didn't want to. He wanted to be an actor, just like you mentioned. And then, in fact, I what 
his quotes were something like, rewrites are a big waste of time, and and I never found them to be useful, and, and I didn't really have much to offer to the Predator. And uh, and he said that was something that seemed to upset the, the Thomas brothers. And he says that was one of the reasons why they went ahead and, <laughs> and made his character the first one to die in the movie. Yeah, the first one to die, and not even in the opening credits, which I thought was just really interesting. You even have Kevin Peter Hall in the opening credits as the predator you know the the human in the creature costume but you don't have shane black which yeah but you don't have shane black as one of the key key guys yeah that's too bad for him quite the slight there yeah the uh the thick glasses uh, my buddy andres who was in the army uh used to call his glasses the birth control glasses <laughs> well i will say one of his notable acting credits is night realm i only bring that up because Sonny Landem and Richard Chavez uh, were also in that movie. Um, so he had three of the, the Predator cast in Night Realm in 1994. Don't even know what that movie yes. is. I just have seen it pop up quite a few times. <laughs> it could be something wildly yeah. inappropriate to be podcasting about. But there you go. He, he did try his hand at acting a few times. But that's not what he's known for now. He's definitely known as the writer. Ultimately the writer-director. Yeah. You know, his so his writing just was like on this uphill trajectory after Lethal Weapon. And you might know a little bit of this story. So his fees for writing scripts kept going up and up until uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight actually set. I think at the time it was the most money ever for a script. And then when it finally went to, to become the movie, and it was this huge bomb. I don't know if you remember seeing it, but it was this really long action movie with Samuel Jackson and Gina Davis. And I don't know, wasn't that great. And it was way too long and way too overstuffed with a lot of different things and then man his career really stalled after that and it wasn't until he kind of uh, rebooted it with his own project kind of from scratch instead of trying to be a big part of the the big blockbuster machines that I think he was able to sort of uh, regain control of his career and that was with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang which he wrote and directed and it was a much smaller right and I love that movie I don't know if you've seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang but I, I really enjoy that movie and not only Oh, yeah, that was not wonderful. Only does that reboot his career? It totally reboots Robert Downey Jr.'s career. Um, yeah, yeah. Shane Black ultimately directs. You know, by the time the next time he directs Robert Downey Jr.'s is what do we have? Twenty thirteen's Iron Man three. By which point, Iron, Iron Man, Man, Robert Downey Jr., the Junior, the Avengers are all these huge, huge projects, and just are huge news any anytime those come up so uh, i would argue that he essentially kind of he essentially relaunched robert downey jr's career too um, which is it's really cool i think you're absolutely right yeah kiss kiss bang bang was an awesome movie the uh, it was kind of the buddy cop movie with val kilmer and robert downey and then i felt like the the nice guys the one with ryan gosling and russell crowe was very very similar in a lot of ways and they were both quite good yeah i, I just rewatched the nice guys a couple weeks ago i just really really enjoyed that movie just the interplay between the characters uh mixed with uh, how he uses setting mixed with this dark or black comedy edge of things where they, they mix the violence sure. with, with the humor a lot and you're laughing but at the same time you're like oh I feel kind of bad I feel kind of bad that I'm laughing so hopefully this upcoming The Predator is putting a lot of that together I have no idea but I'll tell you in a couple weeks I guess we'll see yeah we'll see there's one more person on the chopper 
and I really like what McTiernan does here. Uh, it's when I researched some shots, this one came up as being called an axiom cut, where it starts off far away and the next cut is right up against the subject. So we see mm. Arnold starting to light the cigar and then boom, the next shot is literally just a few feet away from his face. That's, like I said, I believe that's called an axiom cut when I was doing research a while back for this movie or for John McTiernan specifically, some of his trademarks. He likes the axiom cut and he really likes the rack focus where something is in focus in the foreground and then the foreground becomes blurred as you can see something in the background. And anytime I hear oh, yeah. rack focus, I immediately think to certain scenes in this movie, which we'll definitely talk about. Absolutely. But let's focus on Dutch. Dutch lights a huge cigar here. And I was reading a little bit about the cigar <laughs> where by the time he meets the general in the next minute and a half minute, that stogie is very, very short. And IMDb <laughs> was telling me that in order for that to be that short, from lighting to meeting the general, that Jeep ride from the chopper to the general would have had to be <laughs> 45 minutes or so. And <laughs> I just love the idea of just... I would put past from... <laughs> Arnold to be able to suck down a cigar pretty fast, though. Yeah. Yeah, and we were, I was talking about McTiernan trademarks. Clearly one of Arnold's trademarks is smoking a cigar. Um, you see it in a lot of his movies. You see it here, you see it in the jungle. Um, it's really too bad you don't see it at the very end after the, the, <laughs> the Predator's explosion has gone off. And it seems, the that seems yeah, that would have changed the tenor of that quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, open flames uh, on a helicopter <laughs> with the rotors turning. Mm-hmm. Highly encouraged. <laughs> oh, you got cigarettes please light them up now's the time light them up that's light right up. we got we got jet fuel and high explosives all around us please do carrying around bags of ordnance why not there's a rocket right. launcher on just, the chopper now <laughs> just yeah just go ahead you know what i think he's the kind of guy who doesn't necessarily play by all the all the rules yeah, yeah. do you know whose rules i think he plays by his own his own rules. That's right. Uh, He's wearing the red yeah. polo shirt right now too. I, I really enjoy that. Just this, you know, the aggressive color, the 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 color of blood, emergencies. And so yeah, on. And he so looks forth. like he's about ready to go play around a golf though. You see this red polo make another appearance while he's smoking a cigar in another John McTiernan's movie's Last Action Hero. He's wearing that red polo all over the place and smoking cigars all over the place in that movie. I think it's red t-shirt in Last Action Hero, isn't it? Is it a red t-shirt? I could, I, I'm pretty sure it's red t-shirt and throughout Last Action Hero, and that's part of the jokes. Is like he gets one of his red t-shirts all shredded by a shotgun blast, and he immediately like <laughs> uh, comes up with another one. He gets covered in the oil at the Liberator pits, and then his daughter shows up with a change of clothes, and he's got another red t-shirt to put on. It's just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was one of the one of the recurring jokes in Last Action Hero. But yeah, he just right. he just he just like the other guys, he's looking very relaxed, ready to go to work, very serious. And dressed for like a uh, like it could be basically any kind of occasion. Like the if you had to guess what occasions they were getting ready for, you probably wouldn't guess a combat mission. Right. But but it could be anything. Could be you're getting ready to play some golf. Could be uh, uh, you know going to a business meeting. Got a lot of different possibilities here. Oh yeah, especially for Arnold. Like he could just be like going back and forth from his wedding rehearsal and such because <laughs> at the at the time he he was. Right in the middle of nuptials with Maria Shriver. So he, he was having to miss bits and pieces of production. And who's to say? Maybe he just, you know, this is the outfit he wore on the plane that day. And he said, you know what? I'll just, I'll just wear it on the chopper too. And 
cigar is pretty tasty too. Yep, yep, very funny. Just a really minute production note, not even that important, but that's why we do this. But in the very first part before it zooms in on him, when he's first lighting, they could not have the lighter work properly for some reason. So when he's first starting to light it, like those are optical effects of the first flame. The first flame is like really orange and is like shining off his face, but I guess that was added post-production and then when it zooms in, you can see, oh, there's the lighter actually working and it's not creating this, it's not creating this huge glow on his face. I've wondered how they got his sunglasses to light up so so obviously like that oh yeah they flare up so dramatic like whoosh like there's an explosion yeah. or something like that but then it zooms in and there's a little oh nope it's just a normal lighter now it works so they hop off the chopper he throws his bag off and watching this minute a few times it looks like when he throws his duffel off it hits someone else in the leg off to the side i don't know who that would be maybe that's mac or maybe that's Hawkins. I don't know. doesn't really matter. But we have a silhouette view of them against either the sunset or the sunrise. We don't know. The script refers to it as golden hour or magic hour, which means either that hour of sunrise or the hour of sunset. But we talked about this last minute with the cloud cover. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's all feeling a little bit claustrophobic. That's kind of our one moment of seeing uh, the sky where it's not clouded over. There's a little bit of pink and purple in the background but absolutely there are some details in the script that would suggest it's actually dusk i was reading through this uh, a few days ago when they're talking about going in on the mission he, the general says something and we'll see this in upcoming minutes here says something about you're going in in three hours and then when they go in it's pitch black night i think that that sort of would suggest that this is uh that this is dusk and so just getting ready to, to for the sun to set and Carl Weathers is drinking alone, <laughs> and so I, I would hope that it's nighttime and not morning time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes it more likely for sure. Uh, one thing I like about the little scene with Carl Weathers drinking alone is that they include, I think, a lot of stereotypes that you would see sort of in a Latin American bar with the uh, the slowly turning ceiling fan mm-hmm. and all the empty Coca-Cola bottles, which ever have ever been in latin america that's like something you see ubiquitously is is these glass coke bottles just everywhere and the lantern on the table providing the lighting (laughs) (laughs) clearly they're trying to evoke that it's a uh, kind of a low resource society that they're hanging out in although if they've got power to run the fan i don't know why they wouldn't have power to run some ceiling lights (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and we do see that later. In the next minute or so, they'll show some bare light bulbs hanging from the ceiling, providing lighting. And we do see some underlighting when they're looking at the map later, too. So, yeah, they, they have the power to do these things, but I think they're just going for that, like you're saying, that kind of stereotypical look of you know, we don't have a lot of, you know, this fancy technology and electricity down here. So a lot of credits. We see the introduction of the team. We see Carl Weathers drinking alone. We see... Arnold lighting a huge, huge cigar. And then we end with the boots walking down the concrete steps. Who could this be? The way it's edited, it could almost be Arnold walking down those stairs from the chopper. And the next minute we'll see that we were dead wrong. You'll have to stick around for the next minute. For Predator Minute, this is John. And this is Aaron. And until next time... Get to the chopper! da 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 Our theme music is provided by Chaosware. Predator Minute can be found on the following podcatcher services. iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podcast Republic, with more to come. Predator Minute is hosted on SoundCloud at Predator Minute Podcast. 
Predator Minute has a social media presence on Twitter and Facebook at Predator Minute. If you have questions or comments, please email us at PredatorMinute at gmail.com. Thank you.